This is Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge on News Talk 770 Radio, Calgary's breaking news and conversation station. Welcome back. 403-974-TALK is a number 974-8255. Rob Breckenridge with you. Afternoons on News Talk 770. Uh, our next topic, and this is interesting because I think this is really going to be a multifaceted conversation. Uh, but at its essence, it's a look at the state of male-female relations today and the conversations we have around it. And this, this book we're going to be discussing, I think at one level, it's, it's, it's a personal journey. Uh, with the author and, and his wife. Now, the latter makes, uh, let's say, a, 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 a presence felt in this book. So it's a look at, at gender roles within marriages, but also, I think, in, in the broader society and in culture. The book is called The Unmade Bed, The Messy Truth About Men and Women in the 21st Century. Joining us on the line is the author of this book, Stephen Marsh. He's a novelist, contributing editor at Esquire. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. My pleasure. All right. Well, as I say, I mean, this, this book is certainly personal to you at a number of levels, and, and obviously your wife had a lot of input uh, in, into this book, but what, what prompted it in the first place? Uh, well, I mean, it was partly my personal experience, like giving up uh, my job in New York. I was a professor in New York, and we came back to Toronto because my wife got a big job here. And from that, you know, I sort of wrote some essays for The Atlantic and The New York Times and Esquire, and then they, they provoked kind of big response, and I realized I had a book. And then, um, and then my wife, like the the book is foot. My wife footnotes the book throughout. I guess that would be the big innovation. So she points right. out when I'm wrong and when I'm making stuff up, and when she thinks I am full of it. And uh, you know that sort of came out. Just she naturally was editing my work, and then instead of her usual notes would be, which would be like you're an idiot, or could you please learn how to speak the English language, <laughs> she'd end up leaving like page long mini essays. Uh, in response, and I felt like it was just it was better to just include those those notes as their own thing rather than try to incorporate her point of view into my work. Right, and so I mean, look, th- this book is about more than just marriage, and it's certainly about more than just housework. But it's, as the title implies, there, there's something important and, and symbolic about that relationship and that dynamic. You mean between housework and the, and gender power, right? Yeah, I mean, well, I'm just kind of amazed. Like, this is what I always end up talking about when people talk to me about this book, because, like, it's the, uh, like, I assumed that the chapter in pornography, which I made these big controversial claims about, would be the most shocking thing about it. But no, like, the thing that actually startles people is this, is the stuff about housework, which is, I guess, like, the, where, the, where the rubber hits the road when it comes to gender politics. What do you think that is? Well, I think housework is actually very, it feels very organic, but it's actually very constructed. And, um, you know, it's it's one of the rare places, like, for you know, men have changed. In, like, one of this book is going over the, part of this book is going over the sociology. Uh, and, you know, men have changed enormously over the past 40, 50 years on virtually every front. Like, you know, tripled the amount of time they spend with their children. They cook more. They do a lot of stuff different. But one thing that basically has not changed since 1985 is the amount of housework that men do. And that's across the developed world. So that's true in Australia. It's true in the Netherlands. It's true in Portugal. It's true in Canada and America. Um, Like, men just aren't doing more housework. And meanwhile, the very interesting thing is that women are doing a lot less housework. 
and they care a lot less about housework. And so we are getting towards some kind of something closer to equality in housework. But it's not because men are getting better. It's because women are doing less. Well, and it's an interesting question because does feminism and does equality imply that women should be doing less homework? Is it is it counter to feminism for women to do housework? Well, there's really two strains of thought about that. Like, you know, uh, Simone de Beauvoir and Angela Davis, um, you know, these sort of great founders of feminism, I would say, they both thought that housework was just simple enslavement, basically. Like, it was just simply like, it was like women's, in, it fixed women in this, in this, in the world in a very, um, in a way that prevented them from escaping into larger questions and entering work life, really. And, um, and you know, when you think of, like, uh, the uh, Stepford Wives, like, the first way that you tell that the women have become robots in that movie is that they are fast, they're obsessed with, like, house, house cleaning products. But then somewhere in the 80s, it really changed. And what changed is that people began to feel housework as un... Uh, unregistered or unrecognized women's work, and so it, and 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 that was a very that was a very different that was a very different strain of the feminist approach to housework. I mean, the thing about housework is that it is actually very like it seems so obvious, but it really is quite complicated. Like, what is like housework is you know Marx and Engels themselves had this big fight about housework because for Engels it was just alienated labor it was just drudgery mm-hmm. and therefore it would be done away with in the communist revolution but Marx thought it was craft and it was like caring for your environment and it was and it was like directly shaping the world around you in an intimate way and therefore it would never go away and i think that tension kind of just remains like we haven't really made up our minds whether housework is drudgery or whether it's caring for someone and i think that actually survives into a lot of like basically modern marriages. All right. So what about masculinity then? You, you use the phrase in the book, the, the hollow patriarchy. So what, what's become yeah. of masculinity and, and how do men today define it? Well, ma- masculinity is in, a, is in a bad state because men aren't thinking about it at all. I mean, I've done somewhere around maybe 40 interviews for this book. You're the second guy I've talked with. Right. I mean, like men just are just not not talking about their problems. And it has huge health crises, uh, health consequences. I mean, the case Deaton report that came out in uh, two years ago said that the mortality rate for middle aged American men um, was a mortality crisis on the rate of the AIDS crisis in the 80s. And what they're dying of is loneliness and its and its consequences. So drug addiction, alcoholism, suicide. Um, men, men commit suicide almost at a five to one rate to women. So it's like it, it, when they're in their early 20s. So like this gets this gets very um, this is not just feelings. This is actually like a very serious problem. But the hollow patriarchy to return to that idea is basically that two things are happening at once, that women are rising up through the middle class. They get they have more labor participation. Thirteen of the 15 fastest growing jobs in in the world are uh, dominated by women. Um, There are 40 percent of breadwinners in America now, and that's only going to increase. And at the same time, they're denied very clearly the top jobs. So only 6% of board memberships in Canada are women, only 3% of Hollywood directors, even if they, like they're only 16% of law equity partners, equity partners in law firms. So this creates this weird state that we're in 
where women have new economic power, but they're denied the, the top position. And it puts men in a position where they're slipping from the middle, but they still are iconic of power. And I think it's terrible for everyone. Oh, okay. Yeah. But that, that's not to say then that, that men perceive women's equality to be a threat to them, is it? No. I mean, you know, if anything, if you, well, in the context of marriage, I, I, certainly not. Uh, like, you know, I think one thing that you can chart the rise of this, too, is like the rise of companionate marriage, which is the rise of marriage between equals. And the reason for that is pretty simple. Like, uh, no, it is almost impossible to raise a family on a single income anymore. And it's, it, it, the, the rise of companionate marriage is actually it's so dramatic that it's one of the primary drivers of income inequality. So, like, you know, it used to be that surgeons would marry their secretaries. Um, now, surgeons marry other surgeons. Right. And and this and this goes for everyone. So, like, yeah, the drive towards equality, anyone who looks at the numbers, anyone who looks at the data um, cannot help but feel I, I feel if they're being honest with themselves that we are heading very much towards equality on a, on virtually every field. All right, Stephen, stand by if you can. We'll just take a quick break and we'll come back a few more minutes uh, with Stephen Marsh. We're talking uh, about his new book called The Unmade Bed, The Messy Truth About Men and Women in the 21st Century. My name is Rob Breckenridge. We're back after this. All right, welcome back in conversation with Stephen Marsh. We're talking about his new book, The Unmade Bed, The Messy Truth About Men and Women in the 21st Century. Uh, Stephen, going back to something you said earlier about housework, how men aren't really doing more housework, women, mm -hmm. in fact, are also doing less, but are men doing more parenting? How has the role of fatherhood changed? Oh, dramatically. I mean, since the 60s, the time, of, the time men spend with their children has tripled. So that's been a very dramatic change. Um, I, I would say actually one of the most dramatic changes in the whole revolution of gender that we've been living through in the past 50 years. And I mean, as gender roles have uh, shifted and as basically the traditional markers of masculinity have declined or collapsed, um, fatherhood has taken on this outsized role in defining men as men. That it, that it, it provides that, that identity for men. Yeah, I mean, it provides, like, this is anecdotal. Like, you know, it used to be if you joined the military, that meant you were a man. And it, it, that stopped being true about 20 years ago. Right. Like it, it, uh, the, the, it used to be, I guess, even before then, that once you got a, a job with which you could support a family, that was a marker of masculinity. That's, that's, hasn't been true in my, for my entire lifetime. That has not been true. So what is left is really like being there for your children, you know, being, being a father and serving the role that only fathers could serve. And I, the, the reason for that, you know, as the research shows in this in this book, not my research, other people's research, um, shows pretty clearly, like, there's a reason for that, because the, the role of the father is actually very essential. It's the, in the largest study of uh, upward mobility, like what causes upward mobility, like what causes social mobility across class, um, the, the role of a stable two-parent family was absolutely the, the number one correlate. More, and, you know, I mean, and think about that. Like, think about how much time and energy we spend politically thinking about the education system. But it doesn't matter whether you go to a good school or not. It matters less than the nature of the family unit. Well, it, certainly an argument can be made then, though, that, that fatherhood is underappreciated, 
undervalued by by society. Maybe some would say even the the legal system too, or the courts. Well, I would say it's a very odd thing, actually, because it's kind of both. I mean, on the one hand, the courts are in the fifties. Uh, like this, this is the the exactly the, the men's right people have exactly one point correct, and it is about the court system and uh, and, and uh, custody rights. Like they, it is a bizarre throwback to the past. Um, but on the other hand, like I, I feel like most of the men I know, when they're walking down the street with their kids, they get treated like uh, heroes for doing something that's really obvious. Like, that's, that's really not that big a deal. I mean, I remember a friend of mine, after he had a kid, was walking down the streets of New York with a baby on the front going to pick up some milk. And s- some old lady stopped him in the street and said, like, what a, what a good father you are. And he's like, well, you know, I'm just going to get milk. Like, I think the things that men get praised for doing things as fathers that women are just it's absolutely taken for granted. So it, it is very much a kind of weird, contradictory state. Where it's like, on the one hand, praised far beyond what it deserves, but on the other hand, it's also kind of held in contempt, too. Let's touch on on an issue you also mentioned briefly, the chapter on pornography, which, uh, mm-hmm. as you say, I think to, to some certainly it's it's controversial and provocative because there seems to be a notion out there that there's there's a crisis or that this is warping men's views of relationships, views on, on sexuality. What's your take on it? Well, yeah, I mean, I think there is this real moral crusade out there now, like in Utah, for example, where they, where they, where certain groups of radical feminists have uh, got together with evangelicals and actually tried to ban pornography. And, you know, like the evidence, uh, you know, as people pointed out, like Utah has one of the worst child abuse rates. I think it's the second worst child abuse rate in the United States. Like it is a very sexually unhealthy place. Um, like the, the the evidence, like what the, the I call it the pornography paradox because it's a very again it's one of these contradictory states where like if you put men in front of pornography they will show like and this has been replicated hundreds of times greater hostility to women greater sexist attitudes uh, greater um, like willingness to accept rape and and various other forms of sexual violence in the immediate aftermath but then again through hundreds of studies. It's also pretty clear that countries where pornography comes to proliferate um, tend to have declines in sexual violence at, right at, in the immediate aftermath of allowing pornography as part of it. And you know, one of the more interesting things is that it's countries with more liberal attitudes towards gender that tend to legalize pornography. So first of all, it was Sweden in the 50s, which was, you know, absolute, that's where hardcore pornography began, but that's also where, like, women began to have real political power first, then Germany, then the United States in the 80s, then Japan. And in all of these places, you know, uh, sexual violence against women declined as pornography became more common. So this moral crusade is very useless. It's very counterproductive. And it's, it's actually not looking at the data. What we, I mean, we don't really understand what Internet pornography is doing to us, but what we need is a cultured and measured and medical approach rather than the moral outrage approach that we have now. All right. Well, Stephen, we got to leave it there. Again, the book is called The Unmade Bed, The Messy Truth About Men and Women in the 21st Century. Thank you so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate this. My pleasure. Take care. Stephen Marsh, uh, he's with uh, Esquire Magazine. As mentioned, the book is called The Unmade Bed. I I guess we would say he kind of co-authored it. It's it's a unique approach 
where this is his book, right? He's, he's written this, uh, and his wife has provided the footnotes. In some instances, very lengthy footnotes where she's interjecting, uh, she's disagreeing with him, she's taking exception to things that, that he's asserted. So you, you do get both perspectives. We need to take a break here, 403-974-8255. We are back with more right after that. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.